everybody tonight? Tired? You need a nap, Noe. You took a nap. You need another nap? <laughs> We're going to be taking a look at Isaiah chapter 47 tonight. So I invite you to open up your Bibles uh, to Isaiah 47. If you don't have one, there may be one in the back seat in front of you. And uh, we'll dive into that. Before we get started, I'm just uh, going to take some time to, uh, to pray for Donna. I don't know if anybody heard Donna Catrick's husband, Chuck, died uh, this morning or yesterday morning. I'm not exactly sure on the time, uh, the timing of it. Uh, just went to sleep and didn't wake up. So Donna's doing well. Uh, I've talked to her and um, she's doing okay, but I want to be able to lift her up. Uh, and the family up to the Lord before we get too deep into our study tonight. So uh, let's take her before the Lord. Father God, we just come to you, Lord, and uh, God, we thank you, God, for the time that we had with Chuck. Lord, what a what a blessing. Always uh, a good word and a firm handshake uh, every Sunday and Wednesday night. Lord, we thank you for our time with him, God, and we thank you, God, for salvation and redemption and uh, the truth that uh, when he closed his eyes on earth, he opened his eyes in heaven. So, Lord, I uh, thank you that he's with you, Lord. And now we just pray your comfort and your peace to be with the family, Lord. Be with Donna. Uh, uh, thank you that her family's down and she has family around her right now. And and uh, so, Lord, we lift them to you. And we pray, God, that you would uh, comfort and you would bring peace. And, uh, Lord, that you would... Uh, just give them uh, everything that they need, Lord. And and when we see her uh, around town, Lord, or or maybe the Lord would move someone to to call or visit, Lord, I pray that we uh, we can just have a a right word in season to uh, give her uh, encouragement, Lord. So uh, we just pray your blessing upon them and uh, your grace in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, so tonight. We're going to be in Isaiah 47, and Isaiah 47 is the arraignment of Babylon. Now, when we look at Babylon throughout Scripture, um, we see Babylon come up often. Now, we, we have this, uh, this challenge. Babylon's a real place, and especially at the time of Isaiah, Babylon's a real place who hasn't come to power yet, uh, probably somewhere in the neighborhood, a couple hundred years, just to round it off, before... Uh, the nation of uh, of Judah is going to find themselves in captivity with Babylon. And God's already speaking about the deliverer who's going to come and set the children of Israel free. His name was Cyrus. You remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about him. So the Lord said, Cyrus is my anointed. He's going to let you go. He's talking through the prophet to a nation who's not in captivity yet. So just so we can keep all things kind of in perspective. So you have the real Babylon, the real events, right? We remember Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's all Babylon. Things are going to be happening in Babylon. But then you also have this picture that Babylon is. If, you, if you've ever read, and I'm sure all of you have, uh, the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, we, we meet uh, Babylon again. We have Babylon described. We have uh, not only the 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 city being described, but then you have a woman who rides a beast being described. And all of these things are picturing the same 
reality. And that reality is this. So when we look at the prophetic picture, <clears throat> it's a tale of two cities. Jerusalem, uh, which is to be pictured as the city of God. And Babylon, which is a city in rebellion against God. So you have that carrying through in Isaiah's prophecies. And we look at the, the things that, that, that archaeologists discovered uh, in Babylon. You know, they had nearly 1,200 temples in the city of Babylon. That's, that's a lot of temples for anywhere. They had a roughly a population of about 100,000 people which made it uh, one of the biggest places, one of the biggest ancient cities uh, in the ancient world. And one of the interesting things that we find as a result in Jeremiah 50, verse 38, here's what Jeremiah said about Babylon. A drought against her waters, that they may be dried up, for it is a land of images, and they are mad over their idols. So, just a bunch of idolatry. So you get the picture, right? Why God would use a city so full of idolatry as an example of a, of the city or of a people in rebellion against God. And always when Babylon is talked about, she's talked about as a woman. Again, when we get to Revelation, we see some of those same things pictured when we see the woman who rides the beast in the description of Babylon there. So you have these things carrying through. So as we come to Isaiah 47, we see that God has is already illustrating the, the sovereignty that he has over history. He, he's already talking about the control that he has. All None of these things have happened. He's laying out the future before any of these things have taken place. And then he begins to describe through the prophet the reality of this woman, this arrogant, beautiful woman who, who has always lived a luxurious life, and he's going to begin to describe her as a woman who is now finding out what it is to be a slave. God's judgment on the arrogant woman or the picture of Babylon. And the point is to let the world know that all nations have no hope except in the hope of, except hope in the God of Israel. He's the, the Redeemer. There's only one Redeemer. He's the Savior. There's only one Savior. The Lord has declared through these uh, last seven chapters of Isaiah that He is incomparable. There's no one else like Him. There's no one else who can save. There's no other hope for them. And the issue with Babylon and the picture of Babylon is that she proclaims herself to be self-existent. I don't need anything else. I don't need anyone else. I have everything that I need. I don't need a Savior. I don't need a Redeemer. And without God, there's no hope of deliverance. So when we look at Isaiah 47, this is the, the illustration that's being painted by the, by the prophet Isaiah. This is what he wants us to, to be able to put together. And he, he begins with the idea of Babylon's humiliation. Remember the picture of the luxurious woman becoming a slave. Verse 1 says, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. So the idea, again, here's the picture, right? You don't have a throne. But you've always had a throne before, but you don't have a throne now. 
The, the Bible tells us that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And it's interesting because when we look at that word, God resists the proud, and then we, we look a little further in the book of James, and we see in James the Bible tells us that we are to resist the devil, and he will flee. And you have the same word used of how God is toward the proud. So when we look at, uh, was it Proverbs 6 or 16? I can't ever remember. Maybe it's 616. I don't know. But in Proverbs, he lays out the seven things that God hates. What's the first one? Proud look, proud look, proud look, right? So we, we have this view, this picture, this idea. So here you have the humiliation. God's saying of this city that illustrates uh, men in rebellion against God who think they have it all. And they're never going to be humbled. And God is saying, no, you're going to be humbled. There is no throne. You will sit in the dust. Not only that, but this luxurious woman that's being pictured here is going to be the grinder of the flower. That's kind of a long step down from the queen of, of, the, of the area. So look, he says, take the millstones, grind the flower, put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered, your disgrace will be seen, and I will take vengeance, and I will spare no one. So this is the humiliation of the proud. Now, keep in mind, we're talking about a literal place, Babylon. This actually does happen to Babylon when Babylon is conquered by Cyrus and then throughout their history. We also see the exact same thing happening to Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. If you remember Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar tells us a story about how he was so proud of the kingdom that he built, right? And then God taught him a lesson. God taught him that it was he, the Lord, the Redeemer, the God of Israel, it was he who gave Nebuchadnezzar the kingdom. And he proved it to him. You remember how? He let him go crazy for seven seasons, right? He ate grass. He, he walked around like a wild animal. And so, and then at the end of the seven seasons, his, his mind comes back to him and Nebuchadnezzar proclaims, Yahweh is God most high. He proclaims that it is God that made the kingdom because I was crazy for seven years and my kingdom is still mine. Somebody else didn't take it. God is saying to the proud, I can bring you down. What is it that Jesus said when Jesus was teaching his disciples? What did he tell them? He said, when you come to a feast, always sit at the best place at the table. No, that's not what he said. Oh, he said, sit at the lowest place, right? If you sit at the best place, the, the master at the feast will put you down. They'll say, oh no, sorry, that's the seat of honor. That's not for you. But if you sit in the least place, he will lift you up. The idea is exactly the same. When we stand before God in humility, God lifts us up. When we stand before God proud, he brings us down. And this is what's being described in Babylon. It not only pictures the real city full of pride and arrogance against the nation of Judah, but it also pictures the attitude of a mankind in rebellion against God and the position that he all often takes before the Lord, right? How many proud men who have denied uh, the existence of God shake their fist at him? 
talk about their accomplishments, their pride, their abilities. And here the Lord is saying, here is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to accomplish. But not only does he describe what he's going to do, look what else he says. He says who he is. He says, I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, is the Holy One of Israel. So you have God, the only Redeemer, Yahweh, the only Savior, the Lord of the angel armies, so the, the, the uh, Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of hosts, the heavenly hosts, they're, they're all His. He's declaring, this is the one who is saying this. Isaiah telling us the end from the beginning, what's going to be happening. And they, he wants them to know, look, the same God that you can trust in to deliver you despite all the nations that are raging and trying to do things in opposition to what God wants to do, He's saying, look, here's real power. Here's God going to tell you the end from the beginning, what's going to happen. He's going to tell you before it happens. And then he's going to say it's going to be accomplished through him, by him, for him. And it's going to work out his perfect will in their life. So they're going to see the power of God, power beyond their comprehension. Babylon's going to think they have all power. But they'll be introduced to somebody who actually does. It always brings me back, if you remember, the story of the Hebrew youths who stood before Nebuchadnezzar. Pretty incredible to see young men, probably uh, teenagers, maybe in the early 20s, standing before the most powerful monarch in the entire world, not willing to bow before the idol that he's built, and, the, and him saying to them, you know, basically, I'll give you one more chance when the music plays, bow. So they start the music again, and they don't bow. It's pretty obvious when everybody else does, right? What is it? those guys' trip? Aren't they hanging out with Daniel? So he gets angry, and he brings them before him, and he says, Who can save you from my hands? Is that not a proud thing to say? Who is able to deliver you from me? I'm the most powerful monarch in the world. And if you remember what they said, the Hebrew youth said, well, our God is able to deliver us from your hand. And even if he doesn't, we're not bowing to your dumb idol. So they go in the fire, right? They go in the fire, and who's there? Yahweh Sabaoth, God of the angel armies. Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, our Savior. We see this very practical illustration of God's ability to deliver his people through... Whatever means he uh, supposes to use for his uh, good pleasure, for his will, for th those things are going to show us the beauty of who he is. And so the same thing's happening here with Babylon being described. And he's going to describe the, the pride of Babylon, the false pride. It says in verse 5, sit in silence, go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called the mistress of the kingdoms. So you're sitting on the ground. You have no throne. You're going to sit in the dust. But not only are you sitting in the dust, you're going to be in darkness and silence. And all of these things almost fly directly in the face of the woman uh, who rides the beast. 
the pride that she discusses, the things that she talks about, the things that she declares. Hey, here's what's going to happen. Here's how we're going to, to, to uh, uh, be delivered. She says, I'll be no widow. I'll have no orphans. The pride, the, the pride of that woman is, is similarly being described here in Babylon. You're not going to be called the mistress of the kingdoms. You're not going to be queen of the world anymore. You're not going to be in that place. You'll be in silence. You'll be in darkness. Uh, despair and humiliation will be your clothing. And then he describes <coughs> why. Why Why is God stepping in now against the pride of the Chaldeans? In verse 6, he says, I was angry with my people. <coughs> I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged, on the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. So the Lord says, look, you're proud and you, 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 you are, are exalting yourself and your incredible strength. And part of the idea is just really this, this pride. When, when Babylon conquers Judah, just like if Babylon conquered Assyria, or when Babylon conquered Egypt, or when Babylon conquered any of the places they conquered, the king would proclaim himself over the gods they just conquered. He would say, I'm, I'm bigger than Ra in, in Egypt. Or he'd say, I'm greater than the gods of the Assyrians. I'm, I'm greater. And he would have said the same thing over Judah. Why? Because we beat them. If their gods were so big, we'd have lost. So we defeated them, and so they're exalting themselves. And what God is saying to them in verse 6 is, Look, I gave my people to you. You didn't take them. And this attitude that he says you had, this this attitude that he's describing in verse 6, where he says you showed them no mercy, and on the aged you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. It's, It's just the things, Babylon was not a cruel conqueror. Babylon was not Assyria. But Babylon's pride over this defeat of the people of of Israel led them to a place where they were exalting themselves above the God who gave them the victory in the first place. And so God says, I'm going to bring down your pride. The only reason you're able to do it, the only reason you could take the people is because of God's willingness to allow you to be able to take so the issue here is the the problem there within uh, um, within babylon was this assumption that my power our power is greater exactly what you heard nebuchadnezzar say in daniel chapter 4 the difference is isaiah is talking about all of these things and the the uh, conquering of the nation of babylon before she's even a power. Before any of those kings are on the, the lips of the other nations saying, Oh my gosh, here comes Nabonidus. Here comes Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, none of those things were happening. And Isaiah is talking about it. And he's talking about it almost in the past tense. Like, hey, here's what's happening to Babylon. And you're thinking, why are we talking about Babylon? Assyrians, the king. But he's describing all of this pride. 
And that's the same pride that we struggle with today as the pride that they were struggling with, their own arrogance. So probably the issue was not their particular cruelty, certainly not the cruelty like the Assyrians to Judah, but her arrogance over them. The arrogance that they had over these people. So because, hey, we conquered you. Who are you? Who's your God? We, we, we walked all over. Your God has no power. And here was her attitude in verse 7. We really read about it. It said, you said, I shall be a mistress forever. So that you did not lay these things to heart, nor remember their end. God says, you, you, you forget. You don't. You're not comprehending the truth. You say, I'm self-existent. Nothing will ever take us down. Which, again, exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is going to say. He has a dream about a statue. Remember, head of gold, chest of silver, right? We see all these metals declining in value, uh, going down to feet of iron mixed with clay. But when Nebuchadnezzar builds the statue that he dreamed of, what did he make it out of? Gold. Why? He said, I'm not ever going to pass away. See, Daniel, when he interpreted the dream, said, you're the head of gold. But your kingdom's going to pass. Your kingdom's going to pass to the Medo-Persians. They're the chest of silver. And their kingdom's going to pass to the, to the belly of bronze. And their kingdom's going to pre- pass to, to legs of iron. And that kingdom's going to pass. To feet with iron mixed with clay. The point is, all the kingdom of men have one thing in common. What's that? We can't stand apart from God. Haven't we seen that in history? Where is the world empire that's still here? Still ruling the world. Still capable. Still, It never happens. Because man has one thing. We do one thing really well. We rebel. We'll rebel against anything. doesn't matter. Eventually, every great nation tears itself apart from the inside out if she's not conquered from the outside in. And we have thousands of years of history to look at and see it over and over and over again. So God says to Nebuchadnezzar, hey, each one of these kingdoms doesn't have what it needs to have a lasting rule. Do you remember the last part of the dream? A stone, not cut out with hands comes out of the heavens and strikes the statue in the feet and blows it into dust. And then that stone grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth. The mountain that fills the whole earth, Daniel says, this is is God's kingdom. And of His kingdom will never end. God's kingdom is solid. It's able to stand. Man's kingdom's not. As long as we try to do it on our own, we're going to fail. But if we learn to submit to God... His rule, His kingdom lasts forever. And so you have the same thing being declared to Babylon before they're ever in power through the prophet Isaiah telling his people about what's going to happen later on in not their lives even, but their kids' or their grandkids' lives. It's something that's, that's still quite a ways out for them. He says, this is the pride of Babylon. She says, nothing can touch me. I am self-existent. I am self-perpetuating. We can save ourselves, right? 1933, Humanist Manifesto. There is no God. We must save ourselves. It's not a new thing. It's not a new thing. This is the attitude of a world in rebellion against the Lord. 
And a world in rebellion against the Lord is always pictured in Scripture as Babylon. Right? Take Babylon. Where did Babylon exist? Well, it exists in a place called Chaldea, uh, which roots go back to the name Babel, which ought to remind us of a certain rebellion, right? When we look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we see, we often say, well, that's where the fall occurs. But so much more than the fall happens. You have the fall of man, the corruption of man, and the rebellion of man. You have the fall of man, obviously Adam and Eve, right? In the garden. You have the, the, the corruption of man with Genesis 6, when the sons of God uh, came to the daughters of men. And then you have the rebellion of man when you have the Tower of Babel. When all mankind gathered together in one kingdom, one world kingdom, right? One world kingdom come together for what purpose? They're going to build a ziggurat. They're going to build a monument into the heavens to declare we are able to save ourselves. And God said, you know, as soon as man is together on something, all he wants to do is rebel. So I'll confuse the language. And ever since Babel, there have been men trying to make that happen again. No? And when we read the book of Revelation, who, who, are we gonna, who, who comes on the scene? This, this person we call the Antichrist, right? Some type of a world leader who does what? Gets all the world to do what? Focus on one thing, right? We're the only Savior that we need. We're it. And when that happens, Scripture says, Jesus Christ returns. The second coming. You see this playing out, this hardness of heart, this rebellion of mankind, and this attitude that she has. So she says, nothing's ever going to touch me. So Babylon would consider himself a demigod in service to his own god, Marduk. Uh, he's in service to his god who must be greater than all other gods because they conquered these other nations. So in verse 8, here's what Isaiah the prophet has to say. Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasure, the one who sits securely, who say in your heart, I am. You catch that phrase. That's not accidental. Who says in your heart, I am. When we come to the Antichrist at the end of days, there's an event that takes place. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us about it. It says that there will be a time when this final world leader on the scene uh, is going to go into the Holy of Holies and do what? And how's he going to do it? Just like that. Even though you declare yourself, even though you save yourself, I am. Well, that's, that's not an accident. When Moses comes to the Lord and says, Lord, who shall I say you are? I need to give the people your name because I'm going to come back and I'm going to say to the people God's told me and they're going to look at me like I'm crazy, just like you would. So he says, God, I, I need your name. Tell me your name. And so the Lord said, you tell them I am that I am. You tell them I am has sent you. And the natural question we ask ourselves is, I am what? And when you come to the Gospel of John, what do you have in the Gospel of John? You have Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, making seven what? 
I am statements telling us I am what? Because it's the Son who reveals the Father to us, yes? This is what Scripture is laying out for us. This is what Scripture is... is. So when we look at these books and we study, it's not a bunch of little pieces of, of information that don't go, doesn't go together. It all fits. It's all describing the heart of man. It's all describing the rebellion of man. And it's all describing God's judgment against the man who, who knows who God is but won't bow the knee. Romans chapter 1 says that we are without excuse. Why? Because you don't know God exists? No, because you do. How do you know God exists? Well, Romans chapter 1 says you know because God showed you. So that you are without excuse. So we stand before holy God. And in that position as we stand before holy God, we are guilty. We're guilty in our rebellion. We're guilty in our sin. We're guilty in our corruption. And so what's left for us is to call upon the name of the only Redeemer and Savior and bow the knee. Humble yourself. And He will lift you up. Shake your fist in pride. And He will bring you down. This is, this is exactly what Isaiah is describing for us. So he says, look, you say, I am, and there's no one beside me. Now the last seven chapters has been God saying, He's incomparable. There's no one like Him. There's no one like Yahweh. This is a self-proclamation that I'm the only thing I need to be saved. I'm good enough to save myself. I got it all figured out. You say, this woman, this Babylon, this rebellion against God, I shall not sit as a widow. I will never suffer. Nothing bad will ever touch me. Or I will never know the loss of children. This is, these are all statements of pride, right? None of this stuff, that may touch all those other people, but that's never going to touch me. I'm above it. I'm beyond it. But he says in verse 9, These two things shall come upon you in a moment, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. What's he describing? He's just saying, he's describing this, this city, this Pictures the rebellion of mankind as a woman who's luxurious and has never suffered in her life. And he describes the worst thing that can happen to a woman. You're going to lose your husband and your children. You're, all the things you say can't happen to you are going to happen to you. Those, those things will come. That day will come upon you in full measure. In spite, listen, of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. They practiced sorcery. They, they communed with demons. They, they practiced magic. They, they tried all those things. And it doesn't really matter for me what side of the spectrum you're on, whether there was power or there wasn't power in that. It seemed to me, at least when we look in the book of, of Exodus and we look what happened with Pharaoh, there was at least some power going on with the other side, right? Because they could duplicate the things that Moses did up to a point. And so God says, despite all your sorcery, despite all this communing with the, the spirits, right? With the, with the evil uh, spirits, the, the fallen angels, what have you, the demonic, the shadim. Despite all of that, none of that can save you. Because I'm incomparable. Because I'm the judge. 
We spend time, mankind spends time on earth thinking he's the judge. That's what happened in the fall. In the fall of man, man declared, I'm the judge between what is good and evil, right? We do a bang-up job, right? We got it all figured out. No, we, have, we don't have any idea what we're doing. We're, we're incapable of providing judgment, yet we think we sit as judge. And how many times today do you hear people judging God? They say statements like, well, my God would never do that. Are you sure? And are you, are you, if you've reached the point of wisdom where now you can sit in judgment of God. But what God's word declares is he's the judge. Right? He knows good from evil. Yes? He knows righteous from wicked. He is able to judge. And this is what God is declaring. Look, I'm the judge. Not you. You, you, you don't know right from wrong, good from bad. And it doesn't matter who you consult. It doesn't matter, you know, the, I always think of the, the, what is it? The, you guys remember Psychic Friends Network? No? Anybody remember? There used to be this thing called the Psychic Friends Network. And they, they went bankrupt. And the joke always was, I guess they didn't see that coming. Right? The psychic friends. He says, it doesn't matter who you think you're consulting. None of these things will be able to save you from God's judgment. Verse 10. For you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. How about this? Let me, let me put it in a vernacular you may understand in these days. Oh, you, you can't judge me. I do what I want in, in the darkness. I do what I want in the light. You got no right to judge me. No one sees me. No one, no one's able. This is what they're declaring. Your wisdom and your knowledge have led you astray. This is what God's saying. You, you think you know right from wrong, but you don't. Still today we struggle with this. We have the plain reading of the text, of God's word, and then we argue about what does that say. No, we know what it says. We don't like what it says. So now we want to argue about possible, other possible interpretations. That we can change it to make it more culturally relevant. But this is what God's saying to, to Babylon, to those in rebellion against him. It's your wisdom and knowledge that leads you astray. You think you have it. All that happened at the fall when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil wasn't that they learned good and evil. It was that they were going to experience good and evil. We're going to experience it. We're gonna, we don't no longer need God to tell us right from wrong. That's not true. You and I would sit around in a circle and we get together with a bunch, let's say we got together with a variety of people who are living in, in a, a variety of different sinful lifestyles that we know are sinful based on a clear reading of scripture. And we'd sit down and we'd say, man, that person's really nice, you know, and, and they want to do good things. And, and pretty soon we're thinking, well, you know, I, ultimately, I, I think they're a pretty good person. And maybe, maybe I got this whole thing wrong. But we're, we're flying against what the Word of God says. If the Word of God's not the final arbiter, then nothing is. And do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Or what the Word of God says is. 
And I can't fall into my own understanding, my own wisdom, my own knowledge that, that is just my apart from God and say, well, yeah, this, this should all be okay. Because that's man in rebellion against God, the maker, the one who built us and made us and put us here. I, I have a four-year-old. That might not be accurate. How, how, how old is Jackson? Four, he's not four. How old is Jackson? Anybody know? Seven? Somebody, somebody save me. So Jackson's seven years old, okay? And in his seven years, he's learned everything there is to know about anything. And so if I go and I'm doing something, it doesn't matter what it is. It could be doing anything. I'm doing something, and, and he'll say, oh, Papa, I don't think you're supposed to do it like that. And, I, and it makes me scratch my head. I think in your seven years, you've learned how it is I ought to do this. And I know, because of my own life experience, I know that he doesn't think I know what I'm doing. And he's pretty sure he knows the difference, right? How to do it. And that, and when I look at that, all it reminds me of is my own existence with an Almighty God. Because I look at Almighty God and I think, well, surely you need me to massage these words in Scripture so that they don't exactly say what they seem like they're saying. Isn't that the same thing as a seven-year-old telling an adult, oh, let me, that's not how you do that. That's not, Jason was over, we're filling up a pool. And I'm saying, okay, guys, jump in the pool and kick it up against the side to pull the wrinkles out. No, we can't do that. What do you mean you can't do that? You're going to go swimming it in a minute. Get in there and just pull the wrinkles out. It's going to get all wrinkled. Those wrinkles are going to wear through. We'll get holes in the bottom of the pool. Oh, no. No, Papa. No, that's not how you do it. It's like, oh, Lord, have mercy on my soul. This seven-year-old has had like two pools in his whole life. But... I couldn't get him to go in. So the bottom of the pool is wrinkly. How many times is God telling me the same thing? Jackie, do this. Oh, no, Lord, you don't know. This is how we have to do that. Because it won't work that way. Really? I had people tell me when, when we used to go stand outside to plant parenthood. I had a guy one time who, who interestingly enough, was a Calvinist. I, I thought this was kind of a funny argument for him but uh i met with him and he said man you can't do that you're going to turn all these people off now if you know anything about a calvinist turn who off calvinist believes god picked or he didn't pick and that's already decided so what's the difference i thought it was a little bit of a goofy argument for him but you know the point is i think about guys i was i was sharing with somebody about a, a group of guys uh the and abortion now, guys, I, I went down and went to a conference with them and actually went out to Planned Parenthood in, in Scottsdale, Arizona, which is a zoo. And, uh, you know, people all the time saying, well, this doesn't work. And they've got speakers and they're, they're, they're trying to call to the women and they're on sidewalks because you can't get in the parking lot. And, and then the, the, the high priestess of the satanic temple in Phoenix, she comes with a bunch of her people and they're actually the escorts that take the women from their cars <coughs> into Planned Parenthood to abort their children. And so, and so, which is kind of weird, no? Isn't that weird? When's the last time you were escorted somewhere by someone from the Church of Satan? But anyway, and then people come upside, a lot of times Christians, and they come up and they stop with Jeff Durbin and those guys and they say, what are you doing? This doesn't work. And then they open up this book. 
And the book is full of a hundred pictures of babies who weren't aborted. And they can say, it does work. It made a difference for these hundred children. But sitting at home doesn't work. If you got a better idea, well, I'll hear it. But until you do, well, this is, this is how we're going to do. This is the things that we're going to do. And so often, just like that, when I think about that, and I think about my own experiences and <clears throat> how many times there were, there were positive Christian encouragement compared to, um, you know, a, a, a person with a fish sticker driving by telling me I'm number one out the window, which was a little weird. So, you know, you have all these things. What is that all saying? That's man saying, I know what's right. And whatever you're doing, that's not it. And that's all pride. That's all rebellion against God. That's all turning our, our back against what God is, is saying and doing. You say, I am. You say that, that there's no one, no one sees me. There's no one beside me. But in verse 11, he says, but evil will come upon you which you will not know how to charm away. Things happen and we say, I don't know what to do with this. Disaster shall fall upon you. (coughs) Excuse me. For which you will not be able to atone. And ruin will come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. God, who sees the end from the beginning, can proclaim to them, this is where the road you're on goes. This is where rebellion against God leads. That's where it goes every time. Whether it's my own rebellion or a nation's rebellion, this is where it goes. It's coming for us. If you can't see it, every time I see the, the division in our nation, I will not be shocked the day the next civil war breaks out. I won't be shocked. You have men hating each other in this nation like they haven't for a couple hundred years. What's that all come from? All that pride. We know how to do this. We know what we're doing. We don't don't need to submit ourselves to the Word of God. Verse 12, he says, So stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you'll be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you, those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. So you're trusting in all these sorceries and all these plants. Cool. Call out on all those things and see if they can save. There's only one name under heaven by which men must be saved. Only one. There's only one way. Jesus declared it, right? There's only one way to the Father. There's only one way through the Son. Babylon is helpless in all that she tries. So in verse 14 he says, Behold, now here's the result. They are like stubble, and fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. When Peter talks about the end of man, how does he describe it? 
like a burning flame, right? It all burns up. In fact, Christians started saying things like, oh, don't hold on anything too tight. It's all going to burn. It's all going to burn. It's exactly what, how the Lord is describing this. He's saying, look, the, the, in all their wisdom, in all their knowledge, in all their understanding, in all their rebellion, in all their corruption, they're just going to burn up like stubble. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. This judgment is not a comfortable warmth. Such to you are those with whom you have labored who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about, each in his own direction, and there is no one to save you. You can't find redemption and salvation on that road. Redemption and salvation comes in one place. God says this over and over again to his people. He says it over and over again to Babylon. In, in case you want to repeat it again, you can go to Revelation and read Revelation 17 and 18. You're going to see God repeating these same things again. If you read the whole book of Revelation, you see the same sense in which man in his continuous rebellion, despite whatever happens, won't humble himself, won't repent. The number one goal for Kathy and I in discipline in our family was submission. Had nothing to do with the SWAT or how many SWATs there were or weren't. It was about submission. You got caught, you done wrong. Submit to the judgment, whatever it was. That's God's goal in discipline. Submit. Lord, you're right. I'm wrong. In every argument, there's no such thing as no Lord. That's those are that's that's an oxymoron. That's probably worse than an oxymoron. Well, the idea is the answer is yes, Lord. I don't know why. Think about Job. Job. Job didn't get all his answers either. I'm sure Abraham didn't get all his answers, nor Noah his, nor any of the great fathers of the faith throughout time. But they all learned to do one thing: submit to the glory of God. Because he says it's worth it. And Paul would declare it absolutely is. And when you read the book of Hebrews in the hall of faith. And you hear the proclamation of that great cloud of witnesses that goes before us. They're all saying the same thing. That declaration of independence that corruption and that rebellion that runs so deep in all our hearts doesn't take us where we want to go. That road ends in a judgment that's not just a warm fire, but the burning up of, of it all, like chaff. God's call is, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humble yourself, and he will exalt you. What did Jesus do? Philippians tells us Jesus humbled himself, even to the point of death. And so God lifted him up and exalted his name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. Right? 
We humble. That's the example that's been laid out for us. Two cities. Which one you want to be? The city of God or the city of rebellion? Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time, the opportunity to study your word, Lord God. I pray, Lord, that you would challenge us. Challenge us to uh, just allow the word of God to dictate who we are, what we believe, how we act, what we what is right and what is wrong, that it's from our understanding of Scripture. Because there's nothing else. Everything else is subjective. That's the only objective truth we have. So, Lord, as we come before you, we pray, God, that we would be men and women who have submitted ourselves to you. We bow the knee. You are king. And we say what God says is true, and every man is a liar. And that is the most true statement I know. So, God, I just pray, I pray, God, that you would grant repentance. I pray, God, that you would, that you would move in our midst. I pray, God, that you would open eyes and move in hearts so that man in rebellion against you can see the light, come out of the darkness, and recognize as long as I have a self-exalted throne, I'll have no throne. But I bow the knee before the Lord Jesus Christ and I will sit on a throne next to him. It's so incredible, but Jesus said, if you won't lose your life, you can't find it. If you save your life, it just runs through your fingers like sand in an hourglass. Like water that you try to hold on to. But we give it away. So Lord, I just pray that we would know that we would know you. God, that we would submit to you, that we would trust you, that we would call upon your name. And you, Lord, would exalt us and empower us to make a difference in our time while men on every side are are rambling over the cliff. Lord, I pray that you would make us those who are able to stand in the gap to proclaim life where there is none. And Lord, that you would move and empower us as your church. You said that that confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, that confession would stand even against the gates of hell. So Lord, you are Lord. And so God, as we proclaim, we pray, empower your people to impact our culture with the truth that you have declared to us. And we'll give you all the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.